Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. Thank you for being with us in growing numbers, I might add, on a very important week for Australia. So let's get into it straight away. The big news that we have to digest is Australia is going to buy at least three US-made nuclear submarines and build eight nuclear-powered submarines in Adelaide. The total cost is eye-watering. It's said to be in the vicinity of $400 billion, B for billion dollars, 400,000 million. But given that these nuclear-powered submarines won't be operational, operational until the bought ones from America, late 2030s, the built ones here, well, not in service till the 2040s, no one knows what the price escalation will be beyond the 400 billion. A preliminary comment alerts us to the irony of all of this, if not the hypocrisy, nuclear-powered submarines. Well, we've got well over 40% of the world's uranium, and we can't have nuclear energy, but we can have nuclear energy to power the submarines. It is valid to argue that Australian politicians in their bias against nuclear energy have lost the plot. But let us first dismantle the argument that we're preparing for a war with China. We can do without this warmongering over Taiwan. The potential cost to China of a war across the Taiwan Strait is so great that many who know argue that in most scenarios, such a war between China and Taiwan would threaten the very rule of the Chinese Communist Party. The Director of National Intelligence in America, Avril Haines, told the American House of Representatives Intelligence Committee this week as part of a national briefing on worldwide threats that, quote, it is not our assessment that China wants to go to war, unquote. The CIA's Director William Burns testified before the same committee that President Xi has been, quote, sobered his words, by US and allied support for Ukraine in response to Russia's invasion a year ago. President Xi has his hands full. He's coming out of zero COVID, he's trying to restore Chinese economic growth, and he's trying to engage with the rest of the global economy. President Xi confirmed one of his most trusted allies as Premier at the weekend, Li Qiang, and the new Premier immediately warned that the country's 5% growth target for this year, very modest, would not be easy to achieve. So this nuclear submarine deal is not about arming ourselves for a war against China. It's about seeking to secure our national defence capability and, of course, our sovereignty. It should have happened long ago. However, while there have been big announcements and chest beating today, there is a long, long way to go. For a start, there is concern in America that buying up five boats from them, or three or five, will come at the expense of their own domestic manufacturing. Now, it's all very well to look at the pictures of Biden and Albanese and Surak and San Diego, but the detail is a different thing, a bit like The Voice. Announcements with no detail. You will remember the former Prime Minister Turnbull promised all of the submarines would be built in Adelaide, another one of his stupid ideas, and talked about a massive injection of jobs. Morrison sensibly dismantled that. Albanese is now talking about the manufacturing of some submarines in Australia as a, quote, absolute priority. Labor's union allies are saying, legitimately, I think, 
that the plan to acquire a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines will not deliver the promised bonanza in Australian manufacturing jobs. Yet Albanese is committed to spending, quote, whatever is necessary to keep our country secure. I mean, Albo's good at the rhetoric, but the detail, forget it. Anyway, I'll come to that in a moment. But this whole story is a long way from finalisation. Our first submarine, if we're lucky, won't come from America until 2030-something, long after Albanese, Dutton and co have departed. And years before Australia could think about building its own nuclear-powered submarines. And this will likely include Australian workers going to US submarine shipyards over the next five years to observe and train on how to develop a nuclear submarine industry. Now, under the terms of the AUKUS deal, we will become the seventh nation to operate nuclear submarines. But now to the negatives and the need for detail. Why would we want to operate two different types of nuclear powered submarines rather than one? Buy from America and then build here. From America? This assumes that Americans can actually build three Virginia-class boats for Australia when American reports from within the government say they have no capacity in their shipyards. Then we buy them. They arrive by the mid-2030s. Do we have enough nuclear-trained personnel to operate and maintain them? Many say the answer to that is an emphatic no. Can we find enough nuclear-trained personnel to crew the Virginia-class submarines when they arrive? They require a crew of about 135, compared to only 48 for the Collins-class submarine. Is it politics rather than capability that we are going to build the other batch of submarines in the UK and in Australia? Is it valid to argue that if we're going to purchase three from America, why not continue that process? There's going to be extra cost, extra complexity and extra inefficiency operating two classes of nuclear-powered submarines for decades to come. This AUKUS decision is commendably central to transforming our submarine capability, but we ought not to be seduced by the foolish promises that this deal will create 20,000 direct Australian jobs. Albo's letting his imagination run away with him. This is the renewable industry promise revisited. You might recall that it's a decade since the then Defence Minister David Johnston famously said he wouldn't trust South Australia's submarine industry to build a canoe. Now, we're speaking metaphorically, of course, but do we have the capability and the expertise to build 21st century nuclear submarines? Now, forget the photo opportunities today, Biden and Sunak and Albanese. All this was announced 18 months ago. Nothing's really happened. They're just talking now about signing it. And the American Congress, as Adam Crichton brilliantly pointed out from America, hasn't altered the rules prohibiting the transfer of their nuclear technology. And remember, government leaders come and go, as we saw with Morrison succeeding Turnbull and cancelling the initial order with France. Will future governments stick to the script? As Adam Crichton again has pointed out, by the time the first of the eight AUKUS model submarines is ready for service in the late 2030s or early 2040s, the US alone may well have had five different presidents. Then there's a the cost. Now, in population terms, we're a tiny country. No other country in the world with such a small population as Australia deploys nuclear-powered submarines. I have no faith in the Defence Department on so many fronts. No defence project has ever run to budget. No word of the Tony Abbott proposal two years ago 
that we should buy retiring nuclear-powered submarines from either America or Britain for training purposes and as an insurance in the event of a conflict in the region. Now, Greg Sheridan told me two years ago in an interview I did with him, quote, it's unlikely Australia will ever get a nuclear submarine. He further said, and Greg is well informed, quote, in the history of human habitation of this continent, nothing remotely comparable in complexity to building a nuclear submarine has ever been attempted. It makes no industrial or military sense to build the submarines in Adelaide, unquote. Greg Sheridan. Well, finally, the most important thing, money. The per capita cost, 400 billion and blowing out, raises the question who pays for all of this? Under Labor as under Biden in America, and I'll have a look at the Biden issue later, spending seems to have no limit. So there won't be spending cuts to fund this. So settle back and understand that someone down the track is going to, your kids, pay via their taxes, big taxes. Albo and coal belongs, it's gone. This is a very significant move for national security and to protect our sovereignty. But the least we're entitled to is an understanding as to how the bills will be paid. This submarine story has a long way to go. We must not be seduced by flashy smiles and benevolent handshakes. Now, one other story of international significance is the collapse in the last few days of three American banks. Stay with me. I'll explain the origins and the consequences of this later in the program. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones, and you can always email me, alanjones at adh.tv. Well, either the media in New South Wales have gone to sleep, or I'm inhabiting another planet. I work for Liberal Prime Minister. As you know, I was his speechwriter and senior advisor. With almost boring repetition, he would say to me, and I quote, Make sure you always write into the speeches, Alan, that government has no money of its own other than what it takes from the taxpayer, unquote. It is clear that the once liberal New South Wales Premier has never heard of such an edict. Here we have on the eve of an election in New South Wales, a so-called liberal Premier throwing money around the like of which I have never seen, not even in the Whitlam era. Let me be blunt. The management of the New South Wales economy utterly disqualifies the coalition from any claim to being returned on March 25. The Premier might be able to dance with elderly people and launch a campaign with 36 children sitting behind him. But the reality is Premier Perrottet is in utter betrayal of the future of those same children. The spending figures in New South Wales are staggering, but the spending continues. The Premier on Sunday pitched his re-election hopes on a promise to parents that his government would provide financial security for their children. This is either inexcusable stupidity or an inexcusable untruth. All he's done in this campaign is to saddle today's children, the adults of the future, with unmanageable levels of debt. Every promise is made with borrowed money. Even before this election campaign began, the Perrottet government brought down a budget last year with a $27 billion spending spree, borrowed money. As I've said many times, the growth in expenditure growth was 26.5% this financial year. This government is saying, though, it'll look after our children. What? By tying debt around their necks. At budget time last year, the net debt for financial year 2025-26 was projected to be $115 billion. Since then, we've had a half yearly budget review for this financial year, indicating the government's deficit 
that is spending yearly more than it has, will go from 2.8 billion to 6.5 billion. And a Liberal Premier, Perrottet, saying, think of your kids. Mr. Premier, I wish you would. The New South Wales government has had coal royalties of 11 billion, yet the Premier and his Treasurer hate coal. The Premier nodded in agreement the other day when that dopey Environment Minister James Griffin in Manly signed his political death warrant by saying that everybody, I don't know who everybody is, can't wait to get rid of coal and gas. And the Premier, standing beside him, nodded his head in agreement. Last year's budget, a $27 billion spending spree, I repeat, growth of 26.5%. This was last year. Everything loaded up with language and promises the Greens would be proud of. The Perrottet government says electric vehicles will be 50% of new car sales by 2030. So they're going to tell us what to drive. And we'll build 30,000 new charging stations. Where do these figures come from? A Liberal Premier is saying he's thinking of our kids by spending billions of dollars of money that we haven't got. As of last Thursday, March 9, to existing debt, the Perrottet government has promised as of last Thursday, 38.2 billion in this election campaign to try to buy an election victory. Indeed, this Liberal government says shamelessly that borrowing cash and privatising assets is the key to funding the state's $110 billion infrastructure pipeline. Well, there can't be many assets left to sell. And he calls this a long-term economic strategy and a balanced approach to financial management. Who's written this rubbish? Words have lost their meaning. I suppose what Standard & Poor's, the global ratings agency says, doesn't matter. Their analyst Martin Fu last month said that budget repair discipline had waned, I would say disappeared. He highlighted the fact that New South Wales then was forecast to record a deficit of $6.5 billion, $3.7 billion worth than forecast only seven months ago. $3.7 billion. This I regard as a scandal and to me, it disqualifies Perrottet from being taken seriously. He gives me the impression he knows absolutely nothing about financial management. State revenues, including mining royalties, and the government hates fossil fuels, so how the hell those royalties are going to be replaced is never explained, but to mining royalties, add GST, land tax, payroll tax, and motor vehicle tax, all forecast to increase by over 11 billion over the four years to 2025-26. So there should be 11 billion to retire some debt. No, the budget outcomes over the same four-year period are all forecast to be worse than they were in June last year. Why wouldn't they be? There was Perrottet last Sunday, expecting to get brownie points, an $850 million plan, handing every child a trust account with $400 of government money. Did he tell the children sitting behind him it was borrowed money? He wasn't handing them money, he was handing them debt. Yet this allegedly is thinking of your kids. I'm sorry, the blokes are fraud. 1.2 billion for new schools? Why, if the government was doing its job, would we need new schools? This government's been there for 12 years. What's the Premier saying to the teachers at Gilgandra High School, who told the Education Minister, Sarah Mitchell, who's done nothing to address the crisis in education, the teachers at Gilgandra High have delivered an ultimatum to the government. Fill the vacancies or the staff will take matters into their own hands. This is all over New South Wales. Gilgandra High has 21 teaching positions, 10 are vacant. But remember, the government is supposedly thinking of our kids. It's shameless. 
Perite talks about delivering hope to future generations, thinking of our kids. Are these the same kids who are not being educated in our schools, but indoctrinated? Are these the same kids who face the fact that our 15-year-old students are four years behind China in maths, three and a half behind China in science, a year and a half behind New South Wales school children of 20 years ago? Are these the same kids sitting in a classroom where between 36 and 40% of the teachers are teaching subjects in which they have no special skill? Are these the same kids sitting in a classroom where nearly half of the nation's maths and foreign language teachers are not qualified to teach the subject, nearly half? Are these the same kids sitting in a classroom where a quarter of the maths teachers have no training in maths? Yet the Premier stands on a podium on Sunday and says he's thinking of our kids. There is no attempt to end the indoctrination in the classroom. There's no attempt to end bullying in the classroom, including the bullying of teachers. But now there's an election on, we're suddenly told that every New South Wales public school will have access to a trained anti-racism contact officer and best practice teaching of the Holocaust under an historic new agreement aimed at fighting anti-Semitic and faith-based bullying. I'm sorry, this is pie in the sky. Empty promises. Bullying of teachers is endemic. Without discipline, you can't have education. Three quarters of teachers in a recent survey felt unsafe because of abusive and demanding students and parents. But Perite is in government. What's he done about it? Nothing. One teacher complained of hitting, punching, shouting, screaming and tantrums. And the New South Wales Premier says he's thinking of our kids. Was he thinking of our kids when he called for the 15-year-old who stupidly threw a racist remark at the rugby league player Latrell Mitchell? Clearly the 15-year-old is a product of bad education. Racism ought to be out and the kids should be told that. But Premier Perrottet, thinking of our kids, says the 15-year-old should have a life ban. So the bloke who wore a Nazi uniform at his 21st birthday party and vapes is lecturing an obviously poorly educated 15-year-old for whom banning is not the answer. Education is. But in everything that's being said by Perrottet, education hardly gets a mention. If education had been run for the last 12 years, as Mark Latham and I have said it should be, emphasising discipline and content, this 15-year-old most probably would have behaved differently. By the way, our TAFE colleges, if they go on beyond university to TAFE, look like industrial archaeology of the 1970s. The problem is that economic management in New South Wales is no more than an open embrace of the Greens. Three billion, do you mind, in subsidies for so-called green hydrogen, a gift to billionaires who talk this nonsense. Three billion, thinking of our children, but no money for Gugandra High School. Yet the government is 1.5 billion of more borrowed money to subsidise electric vehicles when most New South Wales voters can't afford them. Think of our kids as the government piles up debt. You can't get teachers at Gilgandra High, but 56,000 for Treasury staff to go to a woke inclusion course described by Mark Latham as, quote, basically propaganda, teaching kids how to hate Australia. Presumably the Premier thinks that giving 28,000 to our kids by the time they reach 18, taxpayers' money, will bribe our children into thinking the government is on their side. Well, the Premier chose Western Sydney for the launch on Sunday. Is this the same Western Sydney where children were not allowed to go to school because of a flawed response to coronavirus? Is this the same Western Sydney where the parents of these children weren't allowed to go to work? Is this the same Western Sydney which is in desperate need of more police? 
where the police association says staffing levels are a recipe for disaster. Is this thinking of our kids in a world which is increasingly unsafe? But then the Premier says his government will boost the number of nurses and doctors. Well, where's he been for the last 12 years? The number of people walking out of New South Wales emergency departments without being treated has doubled in 12 months. But the Premier is more concerned about cashless gaming cards, which won't come into being until 2028. The voters are saying deal with the here and now. Thinking of our children, are we? A city the size of Sydney doesn't offer heart transplant surgery to children. Patients and their families have to go to Melbourne, where such a journey poses health risks and increases the trauma of an already frightening situation for these children and their families. Doctors at Westmead have the skill and experience, but no money. It's spent on green projects. Yet a government that wants you to believe it's thinking of our children ignores the reality that more than 4,000 children at the end of last year were awaiting surgery in New South Wales. More than 1,000 had been waiting longer than clinically recommended. There's a staffing crisis in New South Wales Health, which the Perrottet government has ignored. And more and more workers in the health services industry are talking about quitting. Is this thinking of our children? Senior nurses in public hospitals are resigning in droves. They're suffering trauma and burnout from overwhelming workloads, leaving younger, less experienced nurses at greater risk of abuse from frustrated patients. Frustrated? Between July and September last year, according to the Bureau of Health Information, 60,000 New South Wales patients left emergency departments before receiving treatment. I've mentioned this before. The state's newest public hospital in Maitland, $470 million, opened in January last year. Proper management in this state is nothing more than rhetoric. People will say, well, what about the other mob? I'm saying with absolute disgust, it couldn't be worse. Doctors at Maitland Hospital are saying they have no choice but to deliver suboptimal care due to a lack of funding. The hospital is in crisis. All we get is another plan, another $7 million telling us that our patients will be able to connect with a specialist for follow-up care at a multi-purpose service centre. Where does this stuff come from? Yet there'll be supposedly be devoted spaces in all 63 of the government's brand new, not built, multi-purpose service centres so our patients can connect with their specialists. This is the boy in the wall stuff. People don't believe them even when they're telling the truth. But the money keeps coming, funded by debt piled on debt. A Perrottet government will subsidise tradies and truck drivers to use the M5 East and the M8, $184 million. Thinking of our kids and more debt? After last year's budget, a reputable economics editor said simply, New South Wales's cash splash budget was reckless at a time of surging government borrowing costs and soaring inflation. But the money keeps being thrown around. We're told we'll have a deregulation czar. This is Kevin Rudd stuff, remember? He had grocery watch and fuel watch and every other watch except a Rolex. And now we're going to have a deregulation czar and a two year deregulation blitz. May I ask why we haven't been blitzing deregulation already? Thinking of our kids, tell them, Premier, that the way we're going, they'll never be able to afford a home. The reason we have a housing crisis is the regulation, green tape and red tape everywhere. I spoke to a developer on Friday. He was working on renovating a home and he went to the council. This is in a Sydney. And the council officer sympathetically asked, where is your Aboriginal impact statement? This is for a home that's already built, but being renovated in the middle of Sydney. So for $7,000, he
He met with somebody and such a statement was provided, affirming that what he was doing had no Aboriginal impact. But then he was asked where his arborist statement was, to which he said, arborist? There's not a tree within 100 yards. No, but the council official said, you'll need an arborist to say that. So he has to shell out more money. And when I checked this with another developer, he simply shrugged his shoulders and said, Alan, this is happening with every development. Presumably the Perite government has woken up and it's talking about deregulation. The Premier now says if he's re-elected, he'll give small businesses up to $1,000 in rebates over two years to cut the cost of government fees and charges. Are we being run by dopes? Wouldn't the simple solution be save your money and cut out the fees and charges? These people know nothing about financial management. What have they ever run? They've never been in business. Dominic Perrottet, Matt Keane, they've never filled out a payroll tax slip. Yet they're now saying, well, we know there are a lot of fees and charges out there that cripple business, so we'll give you $1,000 over two years, a $40 million program. But only if you employ fewer than 20 people. Do they understand that the fees and charges apply to every business, which limits their profit and their ability to employ people? What do they say in the musical Avita? The money keeps rolling in or rolling out. Western Sydney's going to get its own Centennial Park and Hyde Park. 300 million to upgrade green spaces. That'd be fine if we could afford it. But no money for teachers at Gilgandra High, 300 million. I repeat, I haven't finished adding up. But as at last Thursday, the election promises by the Premier totaled 38.2 billion. The figures are eye-watering. But not a word on Sunday about the interest rate crisis with mental health experts saying that the finance industry must take the human cost of the mortgage crisis seriously. How does this help our kids? With mums and dads deeply stressed with the reality that the wage that comes in doesn't equal the increase in mortgage repayments or the increase in energy prices. In fact, we're told that energy prices will increase by more than 20% from July 1, following the 18% increase in July last year. Not a word about this, except that the Energy Minister, Matt Keane, says his energy policy is there, but it'll worsen, not improve the crisis. Suicide Prevention Australia revealed last week that 46% of people are reporting high levels of cost of living distress. Children are exposed in that environment. Yet the Premier says he's thinking about children, but doing nothing about the environment in which they live. I repeat, this lot want to close down coal mines when the forecast royalty for this year for New South Wales are six billion. That's more than it's costing to build Sydney's second airport. Six billion in one year. And on top of this, you've got the Treasurer, Matthew Keane, and the Premier Dominic Perrottet obsessed with renewables. In fact, they boast that a returned coalition government will legislate to ban offshore coal, gas, mineral, and petroleum production in New South Wales waters. Yet we should be the energy powerhouse of the world. But 80% of our coal is exported so that other countries can have cheap electricity. At a time when the world will consume more than 8 billion tonnes of coal this year, for one simple reason, coal is cheap and reliable, but not available to us in New South Wales. We ban it. Is this thinking of our kids running up unconscionable levels of debt, indoctrination instead of education, and plunging us into energy poverty? If this is the way they think we think of our kids, then I think we need to think again. I cannot as a responsible commentator, remotely endorse the Perrottet government. The Liberal Party and the Liberal government in New South Wales are in disarray. It's riddled with factions. It denies talent. I have a saying that people only repair the house when it's burnt down. 
There is no Liberal Party in New South Wales, only in name. The current house needs to be burnt down with the hope that true Liberals will begin the task of rebuilding. Those of you, who's listened to this, those of you who have listened to this program know that the one person talking responsibly and with common sense on these critical issues of education and energy and financial management is Mark Latham. I believe his One Nation Party has earned the votes of disillusioned Liberal voters who find they have no political home. Well, stay with me, The Voice. Now, don't turn it off. I know people, most Australians have had a gutful. But in recent days, we have had the legal profession at one another's throats, with one prominent silk saying that anti-voice arguments are racist. To be fair to the very bright Brett Walker, he didn't say that any individual delivering anti-voice arguments was a racist. But nonetheless, this is where the debate has sunk. Generally speaking, if you oppose The Voice, you're a racist. And that's been thrust at many critics of The Voice. The good old ABC is wheeling out people like Kerry O'Brien. Now, he's entitled to his views, but he ought not to assume that others are not. Janet Albrechtson made the very valid point at the weekend that even the legal profession is now using its platforms to demean those with different views. How then do you explain not just Jacinta Price and others who are legitimate and informed and articulate Aboriginal opponents of The Voice? Are they racist or ignorant or both? Anthony Albanese, Anthony Albanese has been targeted by one of Queensland's veteran Aboriginal activists, Wayne Wharton, who spent last weekend campaigning against The Voice in the Prime Minister's Sydney seat of Graindler. He accused Mr Albanese of lying to Australian voters and said he believed that The Voice was opposed by a majority of Indigenous people, arguing, quote, how do 16 million people get to decide how 800,000 of us live on false information, unquote. Now, of course, this Aboriginal activist, Wayne Wharton, is in the Lydia Thorpe camp talking about the sovereignty of First Nations people. He says the voice in its current form will take away self-determination by giving power to a panel of, quote, cherry-picked blackfellas, unquote. Now, he has a point when he talks about the composition of the voice, that's those people who will allegedly be the voice, on, quote, six-figure fees. He says, they'll be cherry-picked blackfellas that sing the song of government or any other that governments want to hear, unquote. Well, the reality is the Indigenous voice to Parliament has been contentious even among First Nations communities. Sensing danger, and I'm telling you, I've told you all along, this thing will fail. But the Attorney General Dreyfus last week tried to water down the power of the Indigenous voice to Parliament and was rebuked by Aboriginal leaders in the government's own referendum working group. Simply, the government on this issue is now all over the place like a mad dog's breakfast. Note that the Labor Party is leaving Anthony Albanese virtually on his own to argue the case. They're sensing failure and don't want to be identified with failure, and Anthony Albanese's leadership may well be at risk. A world-leading expert on referenda says that regardless of the wording of the constitutional amendment, Australians will vote no when the question is put to them. John Stone is a former Treasury Secretary. In my view, there have been none better. A scarifying intellect, extraordinary moral courage, invariably right, and unlike the bureaucrats of today who seem to do the government's bidding, I was in Canberra 
when John Stone stood toe to toe with the most powerful politicians. His case was always comprehensively argued and invariably without flaws. He's made the point about the voice being argued by its advocates that there needs to be Aboriginal recognition in the constitution. John Stone says simply, the constitution is a rule book, not a history book. He said it lays down the basis on which six British colonies agreed, quote, to unite in one indissoluble Commonwealth under the crown. As John Stone points out, quote, it had nothing to say about the then inhabitants, non-Aboriginal or Aboriginal. John Stone rightly says, the undeniable fact is that this proposal seeks to insert into the constitution provisions endowing one set of Australians, Aborigines, however defined, with rights not available to the rest of us. And as for the argument that the lack of detail on the voice risks losing the nation's goodwill, John Stone nails it, quote, what risks losing people's goodwill is the unprincipled push to destroy the constitutional foundation whereby all Australians are equal. Well, Chris Merritt, to whom we often speak, is the Vice President of the Rule of Law Institute of Australia. He adds another dimension to all of this when he says that in this so-called document, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the section that refers to sovereignty is not original, but it was a copy, we'd say, in relation to university exams, lifted from a 1975 ruling of the International Court of Justice that concerned the people of Western Sahara. Chris Merritt joins me. Chris, thank you for your time. Hi. Look, in another world, this was called plagiarism, wasn't it? I think you might be right, Alan. It's, uh, it's just a pity that it's not being identified as such, or at least identified as unoriginal, when it's taught in some schools. It, it's, it's a, a copy of a document, a copy of a few paragraphs from a judgment of an international court. It's, uh, it's not from the heart, it's from the heart of Africa. Yes, I mean, the passage you say on sovereignty was authored by a gifted jurist from Zaire. So this stuff's been lifted from the 1975 ruling into the 1992 Mabo ruling, hmm. and now into the Uluru Statement. Yeah, look, in the, in the Mabo ruling, which, which is where this all came from, this is how it came into Australian jurisprudence, it's completely attributed, it's not plagiarised, it's used for the power of the idea. But in, in the Uluru Statement, this is the document that's now being taught in some schools, it's not attributed. It's, it's portrayed as some uh, part of the, the uh, uh, communicator. So the like. authors have been airbrushed out of history. That's it. And it's attributed, in effect, to those who met at Uluru, 250 Indigenous leaders, I think it was. And that, that's the attributed uh, authorship that's mm. being taught in Australian schools. That's called dishonesty. That's it's not, called just dishonesty. not right. It's just not historically no. correct. The third paragraph of this Uluru Statement concludes with the assertion that Indigenous sovereignty has never been ceded or extinguished, and this is what Lydia Thorpe's on about, and where it starts describing sovereignty as, quote, a spiritual nation, the ancestral tie between the land or mother nature, etc. It contains, does it not, Chris, terms like people who were born there from and remain attached there to. And as the Jesuit priest and lawyer, Frank Brennan has said, and our thanks to you for pointing this out to us, quote, not many 21st century Aboriginal Australians use terms like there from, there to, and thither. Hmm. There is the passage which appeared twice in the Mabo judgment 
about a spiritual notion, notion and quote, the man who was born therefrom remains attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with his ancestors. And this link, it goes on, is the basis of the ownership of the soil or better of sovereignty. I mean, Chris, this is scandalous stuff, really. I mean, it's not original. It's not related to what was discussed at Uluru. And here it is presented as an original document. Yeah, look, it, uh, it's, it's scandalous, I think, is the correct word, Alan. It's, if you're going to use these terms, if you're going to draw on international jurisprudence to make your case, the, it's just good manners to attribute it to the, the correct authorship. It's, it's just wrong to portray this as something that came out of And just repeating for our viewers, minds. what Chris has pointed out, and Frank Brennan has pointed out, that this is from a ruling, this language, word by word, from a ruling of the International Court of Justice concerning the people of Western Sahara, written by a gifted jurist whom Chris names and Frank Brennan names, Nicholas Bayona Barmaya. Yet the Uluru Statement produces the entire passage, and as you say, Chris, right down to the colon after the first three words. Yeah. That's called abject dishonesty. Yeah, look, it, it's, it's unfortunate for the proponents of uh, the yes case in the coming referendum that this has come to light right in the middle of this campaign because, it, to my mind, it undermines the origins of this proposal for a voice to parliament because that's what the Uluru Statement was all about. Mm. It was the voices where, where it came from and this is one of the core components of it. But hang on, just imagine if this was true of the no case... Uh, it'll be all over the front page of every newspaper and every bulletin. Now, apart from you and Frank Brennan, no reference. No reference of this plagiarism, no reference of people being eminent jurists, being airbrushed out of history, and what's worse, as you say, Australians have been led to believe, and Indigenous Australians as well, that the Uluru State was homegrown, when in fact the ideas are not original. Mm. Look, Frank Brennan um, is a Jesuit priest and he, his approach in his new book on, on the voice or on the, the proposal for a voice is very, very gentle on this aspect. He doesn't drive home the point uh, with as much force, if I may say so, of, of uh, what I wrote in The Australian about this, but that's the reality. He, he outlined the facts. The facts are clear. This was lifted holus bolus from international jurisprudence and presented as something homegrown, mm. and it's not. And, and the author has been airbrushed out of the history of the document. I mean, the, the source, the, this is the issue. We've got to repeat this and say it over again. The source of Uluru's big idea about sovereignty and the rest of it hasn't been acknowledged. Mm. Now, this was once called plagiarism. You've called it cultural appropriation. I think that's a more accurate way of describing it. Um, it's an attempt by indigenous people to appropriate uh, a way of thinking about sovereignty that had nothing to do with indigenous people, but arose in, in Africa and was the creation of a very gifted judge from the Republic of Zaire. And it's really unfortunate that school children are not being taught the yes, facts. This has been taught in schools everywhere and repeated ad nauseum in defence of the voice. Uh, couldn't we ask a couple of questions here, Chris? Shouldn't children and the public be taught the truth that the Uluru Statement is not entirely original 
and not entirely homegrown. Shouldn't they be taught and shouldn't the public know that the Uluru concept of sovereignty as a spiritual notion is the work of others? And originally, as you said, referred to Africans in the Western Sahara, not Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. Look, I I think that's the bare minimum. If we're seriously going to vote at a referendum and on an idea that came out of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, we should at least know where this idea came from. And it's not an Australian idea at all. Mm. Well, we give credit to that splendid scholar, priest and lawyer, Frank Brennan, for tracking this down, the son of the late Sir Gerard Brennan, the author of The Leading Judgment in Mabo. Chris, isn't the answer here to acknowledge the truth of what the former Treasury John Stone has said, that it's not the lack of detail on the voice that risks losing the nation's goodwill, but rather, his words, the unprincipled push to destroy the constitutional foundation whereby all Australians are equal. I would have thought that's unarguable. He's right. Uh, Equality of citizenship is what this referendum is all about. That's the real issue. Do you want equality of citizenship or do you want the Gama model? And bear in mind, this is one model of the voice. There's every opportunity for the government right now to change the Gama model, to reduce some of the overreach uh, in, in the model that's uh, been outlined. But even the so, you Festival. shouldn't be altering the constitution based on race, surely. I mean, you shouldn't be, as John Stone says, inserting into the constitution provisions endowing one set of Australians with rights which aren't available to the rest of us. I would say under no circumstances, forget the, the, the minor pieces at the side, under no circumstances could we vote yes to this. At the moment, the proposal would give one race-based body the ability to have a say on all laws, not Mm. just those relating to Indigenous people, Mm. but all laws and all issues of public policy. Mm. Now, that's massive overreach. Mm. At the very minimum, you could say there might be an argument for allowing an Indigenous representative group to have a say on laws that refer only to Indigenous people, but not to laws that affect the broad community. And that's what we're looking yes. at. Well, I mean, even highly intelligent lawyers at the weekend argued, well, hang on, hang on a minute. I mean, all sorts of people have access and influence government and have some input into decisions of government. But, but Chris, these people don't have their right enshrined in the constitution. Mm, that's, that's the difference. It's all very well to, to point to the Mining Council and the Business Council, yes. the ACTU. They're all very important, Bodies. critical parts of yep. the, the Australian community. None of them are entrenched in the constitution. They're lobby groups, that's it. good, respectable lobby groups, yep. as is the indigenous community. That doesn't mean to say the indigenous community, a representative body, should be entrenched in the constitution. They're a lobby group, an important one, but just like everybody else, they're one of many and should be given the same weight when it comes to governing this country as everybody else. Good on you. That's where we leave it. You can't do it better than that. And that means we all vote no. Chris Merritt, we thank you again for your important contribution in educating Australians about the chicanery that's going on in relation to this issue of The Voice. Chris Merritt is the Vice President of the Rule of Law Institute of Australia. You can read him regularly in the Australian newspaper. Chris, thank you for your time. It's much appreciated. Quite okay. Anthony Albanese was 60 on the 2nd of March. Incidentally, the Treasurer has a birthday on the same date, albeit 15 years younger. However, a brilliant piece of writing and research by Vicky Campion last Saturday for News Limited deserves wider dissemination.
Unfortunately, it is about character. Vicky Campion ploughed through the Hansards to discover that in 1998, in a debate on the then Prime Minister John Howard's leadership, Anthony Albanese attacked Mr Howard's age, then 60, and his height, 176.5 centimetres. According to Hansard, Mr Albanese, then 35, lacerated Prime Minister John Howard as being a fossil, a man small in every sense, a little man, an anachronism belonging to museums and historical texts, too old to serve, who, according to Mr Albanese, in Hansard, quote, probably wishes good old Ming had dosed the country with formaldehyde when he had the chance, unquote. It's pretty ugly imagery by the current Prime Minister. As Vicky Campion wrote at 35, Mr Albanese etched heightism and ageism into Hansard, quote, proving youth is no guarantee of a tolerant or accepting mind, unquote. Rightly, wrote Vicky Campion, and I quote, does 1.5 centimetres, the only difference between you and Howard today, give you all these rights to weaponise personal physical insults? Are you such a supreme specimen, she asks, that you've never considered saying sorry? Attacking a person's body, not the policy, is the most unsophisticated form of debate, unquote. Disturbingly, Vicky Campion alerts us to the fact that Mr Albanese reposted a video of the speech on Facebook only five years ago. Vicky Campion rightly concluding that, quote, in 20 years, did you never temper your views to such an extent as to offer an apology? If it was exuberance then, what is it now, apart from discrimination? Well, as Vicky scarifyingly observes of Mr Albanese, quote, hopefully now you can recognise that 178 centimetres, you being 1.5 centimetres taller, doesn't make you a comparative physical Adonis, unquote. But disturbingly, Mr Albanese in 1999, a year later, repeated the line that, quote, anachronisms belong in museums and historical texts, certainly not in parliament or in leadership positions, unquote. And he called the gentleman, John Howard, quote, the voice of the impotent, who, quote, never escaped from what Barry Humphreys refers to as the age of Laminex, unquote. Vicky Campion reminds Mr Albanese that his mentor, Tom Uren, a veteran, veteran of Australia's political left, remained uncriticised then by Mr Albanese in the parliament, even though Mr Uren was over 70. Vicky Campion reminds the current Prime Minister that he was a member of the parliament when Mr Howard passed the Age Discrimination Act, making us the first country in the world to appoint an Age Discrimination Commissioner, even though I might add people in the workplace are still discriminated against on the basis of age. But pleasingly, in Vicky Campion's brilliant piece, she reminds us that in olden days, members of parliament had a way of dealing with the condescending utterances of people like Anthony Albanese. And she reminds us, and she's done some homework and some research, Vicky, she reminds us of Prime Minister George Reid, who was the Prime Minister of Australia from 1904 to 1905, the fourth Prime Minister of Australia. He had previously been Premier of New South Wales. Well, someone in the parliament heckled Prime Minister George Reid about his body shape. He was what you could call rotund. The heckler in the parliament asked the Prime Minister Reid what he was going to call it. Prime Minister Reid replied, if it's a boy, I'll call it after myself. If it's a girl, I'll call it Victoria. But if, as I strongly suspect, suspect it's nothing but piss and wind, I'll name it after you. <laughs> 
Well, Vicky Campion reminded us that the Anthony and Albanese of yesteryear criticised John Howard for repeatedly, quote, bringing up his past. In every performance at Albanese, all we get are his life's grievances, the accumulated bitterness of the bile of 13 long years in opposition, unquote. This is anything but the Albo who presents himself as this kind conciliator. Anthony Albanese condemned John Howard for not meeting the Spice Girls, taking it as an attack on, quote, the youth of Australia. But as Vicky Campion writes, Howard wasn't dazzled by red carpet celebrities. He never got caught up in parties. That's why his supporters were known as Howard's battlers. Unlike you, writes Vicky, referring to Mr Albanese, Howard didn't rush to the red carpet at awards nights and premieres with musicians, actors and TikTok stars or engage celebrities such as the former LA Lakers centre Shaquille O'Neal into The Voice, unquote. And then reminding Mr Albanese of the brutality of politics in which your own language can return to identify your hypocrisy, writes Vicky Campion, quote, after smashing Howard for his makeover, his dental work, his eyebrows and new glasses, ask yourself, Mr Albanese, would you have been comfortable on that red carpet at the GQ Awards or the Hamilton premiere without your capped teeth and your styled eyebrows and hair? She also reminds Mr Albanese that John Howard gained a higher primary vote in a coalition loss than Mr Albanese's Labor Party gained in an election win. Writes Vicky, if you are that large with the extra 1.5 centimetres, then maybe you're big enough to offer an apology because Mr Howard is large enough to accept it, unquote. The key point in all of this is that Albanese is the metaphor of what we're not be now being presented by Albanese's Labor. They aren't what they appeared to be. It's easy to be hobnobbing it around the world, getting your picture taken and being pleasant to foreign dignitaries. But that behaviour is in stark contrast to the brutal language used against one of Australia's greatest leaders and a gentleman, John Howard. As Vicky Campion rightly says of that brilliant piece of Mr Albanese, all we've seen from you so far are soaring electricity prices, nine increases in interest rates, vanity projects, class warfare, cash giveaways and tokenism, investing in hope and emotion while destroying the foundation of superannuation created by Labor Prime Minister Bob Hawke, who was then 62 and older than you. Writes Vicky, so maybe age is just a number. Unquote. Be careful, Albo. The past is rapidly coming back to haunt you. Well, having spoken earlier in the program about the bank issue, uh, let's go to Peggy Grandy in America, where in many ways the spending disease that I talked about earlier in the program here in New South Wales, and basically America leads the world, the spending disease originates there. We have it now, as I said, here and in many parts of the world. But Joe Biden has unveiled his budget. This is not believable for financial year 2024. I mean, I repeat, this is beyond belief. A 6.9 trillion spending spree that is based on debt. No, they've got, they've got the money. Chock full of wasteful spending, higher taxes. He said the budget's a statement of his values. It's hard to believe that it addresses the values of American people. Uh, this is significant for us because this is exactly the problem we have here that I alluded to earlier in relation to Perite and the election on Saturday week. Let's go to Peggy in America. Uh, Peggy, if Biden's budget were adopted, 
the national debt would exceed $50 trillion by 2033, and the debt to GDP ratio would surpass the record set after World War II. Peggy, surely the Republicans in Congress will not support this. That's correct, Alan, and thank you for having me on. And thankfully, the Republican-led House won't support it either. It is a disease or an illness, as you say. I mean, it's just insane what they're proposing to do. And they know they can't spend their way into prosperity, and yet they continue to try it. And thankfully, the Republican Congress is going to stop this. But Ronald Reagan said it best that government is the problem, not the solution. But this Biden administration continues to think that that they are the solution and more money into the economy with reckless spending is going to solve it. It's yeah. not. And the American people, I mean, yeah. and thankfully, this Congress know it. Uh, that's right. I mean, Biden talks about a war on wealth. Here we've got it, $4.7 trillion, $4.7 trillion in new and expanded taxes. Peggy, firstly, are Americans aware of this? Because it depends on the media and the way this is presented. And are Americans going to cop it? Well, the American people only know pretty much what they're told. And if they listen to mainstream media, they're maybe celebrating this Biden budget because it talks about socking it to the rich, that you're going to tax millionaires and billionaires. And Joe Biden promises time and time again that this won't affect the ordinary Joe. Well, we know that those are empty promises and perhaps are even campaign promises. The American people aren't buying it because the numbers right now tell us that $94,000 is pretty much what every American owes. And that is equates to $250,000 for every taxpayer on the federal debt where it is right now before we add additional spending. So people are paying right. attention to this. They're not buying that's Joe right. Biden's empty promises, thankfully, this time. Well, I mean, that's exactly the situation here in New South Wales. This is debt on top of debt. But Peggy, I'll just come back to this. These are eye-watering figures. Now, over the next 10 years, Biden's budget will result in over $82 trillion, trillion in cumulative federal government spending. And this is funded by debt. Yet you've got middle class and lower income Americans struggling to afford gas and groceries and the mortgage. Where do they fit into all this? Well, they don't. And Joe Biden has yet to acknowledge the pain and the harm that his budget priorities in the past have been causing the American people. The American people may not know the ins and outs and the line item of every every dollar spent on the Biden budget, but they know the effects of those policies and they've been feeling them for two years. The American people want this reckless spending to stop because they do know that it's harming them. They don't believe that it's only going to harm millionaires and billionaires because they're feeling it every day. So they're not buying this. And I don't think Joe Biden's going to be able to sell this to anybody and certainly not a Republican led house. No, but I mean, you know, you think about the elderly and people on pensions and so on, and there's no plan here for Social Security. He wants to present himself, typical Democrat. Well, I mean, it's not him, it's whoever's writing this stuff for him as a defender of the seniors, for example. There is not one penny of Biden's tax hike which would go towards averting, you know, I've talked about this before, Social Security's scheduled insolvency. We've got this problem here with Medicare. I mean, the thing is broke. Now, there's not a cent going to solving all of this. So basically, uh, at the end of the day, the elderly, those on pensions, I mean, is he going to let Social Security program go bankrupt 
and cut benefits by 20% to those who are currently on pensions. None of this is explained, but it's a, it's a rather frightening prospect. Well, he can't defend it, and the Democrats in his party can't defend it either. All they can do is deny, distract, defer blame. They typically blame Republicans for everything that they themselves are guilty of. And we've talked about this both in Australia and in the U.S. This is a massive problem. This is a snowball that is going to consume us all, and we need to face up to it. We need to make fundamental changes to the program moving forward, and it doesn't sound like Australians are any more willing to tackle it than Americans are now. Joe Biden's got a huge problem on his hand. He can't talk himself out of this box. That is absolutely right. I mean, I've just earlier in the program here talked about uh, you know, the $400 billion AUKUS agreement, that's fine, $400 billion. We're a little country here. There's only 14 million people pay tax. Who's going to fund for a great idea? It's a great idea to give us this nuclear capability, $400 billion. So the only way you can go with the, the lefties, that's the Democrats or the Labor Party here, are tax hikes. Now, I just say to our viewers, in this budget that Biden has brought down, there are at least a dozen tax hikes, hikes and they total $4.7 trillion in new and expanded taxes. I think we're heading in that direction, Peggy. Won't this be the largest tax increase in modern American history? It will. And the American people are not in a position to be able to afford this. And it's amazing how generous you are with somebody else's money. Joe Biden doesn't see this as his money because it's not. It's the American taxpayer's money. And so generous, in fact, that he's giving one of the largest pay raises to federal workers who already are paid typically much more than the same jobs in the private sector. 40% of federal workers have yet to return to the office full-time after COVID. And so here Joe Biden is giving these people who haven't even been in the office when other people have been um, a pay increase of large Mm. proportions. So Mm. he's very generous with other people's money. Yeah, well, I'm just saying to our Australian viewers, you see, Jim Chalmers would be eyeing this off. For example, one of the proposals in the budget is a tax on unrealized capital gains. That is, Americans would have to pay taxes on property that has increased in value, even if they haven't sold the property. I mean, Peggy, for God's sake, where is this taking us? I mean, he's going to increase the business tax rate to 28%. The Tax Foundation has said that'll kill 159,000 jobs, shrink the economy by 720 billion, and cut wages for low-income Americans. And the tax hike would lead to America having, this is amazing, having a higher business tax rate than even communist China. And the communists sort of go after all the business people, all the millionaires, that's how they rake the money in. Here would be America with a higher business tax rate than China and American workers that have to bear the brunt of all of this. Peggy, why aren't they marching in the streets? Well, tax hikes is all they do when they're out of ideas and don't want to deal with fiscal responsibility. And as for the business tax, it's so interesting because what has Joe Biden said all along? He said he wanted to promote made in America. He said two words are important, made in America. We've laughed about that. But this is completely opposite of that. This is going to, rather than bringing businesses back to America that have been all over the world, it's sending businesses right outside of our borders, doing the exact opposite 
of what he said that he wants to do and has prioritized with his administration. So everything he says is empty words. It doesn't match up with his actions. And somebody's got to be telling him that this is the wrong way to repatriate money and businesses back to America. It's going to do the exact opposite. Well, drive I mean, Peggy, them out. To my viewers, Peggy's point is 100% correct. She's saying basically that the, the, the incidence of tax on business is driving American businesses to other destinations because the tax rate's too high. The total business taxes in this budget will jump by 56%, increase by 56%. And this is the Tax Foundation has said, quote, the highest sustained share of the economy since the 1970s. But at the end of the day, Peggy, where is business? What's their response? Have they lost their voice? Well, it's not only not the way to get Americans to invest in business here, but to get people from all over the world to come here and invest. And it's amazing how a lot of these progressive Democrats that own big own big businesses or are CEOs of corporations, they're all in favor of these progressive policies as long as it punishes the little guy or punishes somebody else. And now all of a sudden, when those policies are boxing them in and we're seeing their own profits decline, all of a sudden they may be reconsidering some of their support of this. I know you're talking about on your show tonight, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah. They were very proud of the fact that they had spent $5 billion recently on this woke agenda. Well, I bet their depositors and their customers sure wish that the money would have That's been it. financially um, you know, put elsewhere in someplace responsible. That's absolutely right. And you see, I, I'm worried about how America is likely to be used as an example for Australia because Chalmers would have his eye on this. He wants money. If you include in this budget state taxes, corporate tax rates, they'll jump to the second highest in the OECD after Colombia. After Colombia. What a record. I mean, Peggy, you've already got high gas prices, but Biden's budget proposes $31 billion in tax hikes on US oil and gas production. I mean, where does all this end? Well, it's unsustainable, and the American people and American business owners know it. We saw this same thing um, on the heels of the Carter administration, and Ronald Reagan came in and wanted to cut specifically these business taxes, and everybody said it was a terrible idea, but it brought about prosperity and success. Right. You know, the yeah. Democrats are showing their hand on what they value, and mm. it's not the same things as the American people no, value I mean, the, in their homes or their businesses. Yeah, there's a golden rule, isn't it, in economic management? If you tax something, you'll get less of it. Tax wealth, you get less of it. Tax the worker, ridiculous, you get less of it. Tax business, you get fewer businesses. Uh, and I'm saying we've got viewers in America who are watching us here. The, the Manhattan Institute senior fellow, Brian Riedel says, the two trillion of the new taxes that Biden's proposing, quote, would go towards new spending initiatives on top of the five trillion in new spending Biden has already enacted. I mean, this is a spendathon. The budget is riddled with all this green nonsense, equity and environmental justice. It mentions, the budget mentions equity 63 times, climate 148 times, environmental justice 25 times. Peggy, what the hell? I mean, inflation's mentioned only 10 times, police four times, parents three times, gas prices three times, and fentanyl, which we talked about last week twice. It does say something of Democrat priorities, doesn't it, Peggy? 
It does, and those priorities are grossly out of step with the American people's priorities because the things that they prioritize are education and low crime and safe streets and good schools and a well-funded military and a secure border. And certainly those aren't the priorities of the Biden budget or the Biden administration. And he's very disconnected from reality or from the priorities of Americans. Mm -hmm. I mean, the budget also say to our viewers here doesn't include what America call the Hyde HYD amendment. According to the courts, the Hyde amendment effectively defines the range of medically necessary abortions covered by Medicaid by carving out particular abortion services that states are not obligated to cover. This budget would use taxpayer money to fund all abortions. I would imagine a policy that the majority of Americans oppose. Peggy, what about this Civilian Climate Corp? I mean, pushed by the far left environmentalists, it's going to pay young Americans to advocate for environmental justice. What the hell does that mean? Well, I thought our colleges were already doing that, right? <laughs> Seems like everybody that goes through these woke universities here in the US and probably in Australia too are evangelists for the climate. But again, yeah. these are not things that the American people prioritize. These are not things that the federal government should be funding or supporting. If private organizations want to do that and advocate for that and spend their money on that, that's great, but these are not priorities for the federal budget. And not for taxpayers' money. Not for taxpayers' money. There's $150 million yeah. in this budget for the legal fees for illegal immigrants. Hello? $150 million for the legal... Oh, stop it. Legal fees of illegal immigrants. You wonder where this nonsense ends. I mean, what about national security, Peggy? The Center for Strategic and International Studies senior advisor, Mark Kansian said, quote, for defense, this is a pretty substantial step backwards. Now, you've got China and Russia breathing down our necks, and in the midst of a border crisis, Biden's budget would cut funding for the Department of Homeland Security. I don't know. I just don't know how Americans would accept this. I feel outraged. I'm miles away here in America. I mean, last year, the Republicans wanted 18,000 Border Patrol agents, 18,000. The budget is funding 350. Peggy, I keep saying I just understand why, don't understand why they aren't marching in the streets. Well, they're supporting 350 border agents, but they are supporting also 87,000 IRS agents. So you can tell that the priority is to go after the American people, not to protect the American yes, people. Yes. And That's whether it's revenue, funding yeah, or lowering the funding for the military yeah. or just throwing a bone how many, and securing How many? The I missed border, that. How many, have been, how many are going to be employed before. to chase Americans down for their tax inland revenue? How many? 87,000 
Well, we'll leave it there, Peggy. I've got to tell you, I'm concerned because this is likely to come our way. When it happens with you, I mean, when you people sneeze in America, we get pneumonia. There'll be Jim Chalmers and co in Australia going through every detail of this and saying if this is okay for Americans, this is okay for Australia. Peggy, great to talk to you. We'll talk well, again Americans next week. Americans are going to say no to this, Alan. So I hope you take um, some comfort in that. This is short-sighted. This is not leadership. And it's going to be rejected by the Congress and the American people. Absolutely. And hopefully, at the next presidential election, we'll get someone elected with a few brains. And you know my thoughts on that. In this difficult, current, <laughs> difficult do. climate, the one man that provides answers to all this is Donald Trump. All right, Peggy, great to talk. Talk to you next week. There she is, Peggy Grandy in America. Well, as the headlines have reported in the last few days, three American banks have collapsed. Nothing like this has happened since the global financial crisis in 2008. Bank depositors right across the world are getting cold feet. They aren't sure whether they can trust the banks to pay back their deposits. Many are now questioning whether hiking interest rates to kill inflation is the best path forward given these three US banks couldn't handle a measly 4.5% cash rate. Now remember, many banks are at risk because they made the false and reckless assumption that low interest rates would last forever. Banks want customers, suck them in with low interest rates using depositors' money. But depositors can ask for their money to be repaid at any time. A bank like Silicon Valley was investing in long-term assets that it was unable or unwilling to sell. When interest rates rose quickly, the bank was saddled with losses. The simple story here is that Australian and US banks operate under a broadly similar system. Funds in banks are guaranteed by the government here to the tune of $250,000 per head per bank. Likewise, America, $250,000 US dollars. But with SVB, the Silicon Valley Bank, when it came to the crunch, the $250,000 per head was not enough. The Biden administration stepped in to promise all funds on deposits would be refunded. Note the depositors are refunded, shareholders and others just whistle. The taxpayer though, coming to the party again. Surely governments have an obligation to make sure that imperfect banking practices don't go unpunished. There's a further standout part though in all of this. The first and largest bank to fall, Silicon Valley Bank, may well be the most woke bank in the world. This is no coincidence. Silicon Valley was a climate bank. It lent billions of dollars to over 1,550 technology firms working on solar, hydrogen and battery storage projects. In its 2022 ESG report, Environment, Social and Governance, the bank said it, quote, aims to support companies that are working to hasten the transition to a sustainable, low carbon, net zero emissions economy, unquote. I wonder if the fate of Silicon Valley Bank would have been different if it had lent the money to coal miners instead of climate activists. Perhaps then the deposits they needed would have kept on coming as the profits flowed in. The bank also committed to investing a whopping $5 billion by 2027 to support, quote, sustainability efforts. In its European offices, the bank held a month-long pride celebration and promoted safe spaces. Meanwhile, it didn't have a chief risk operator for eight months, while it invested clients' money in low-interest government bonds that are now worthless since rates began to rise. 
And once the bank finally got around to appointing a chief risk officer for Europe, Africa and the Middle East, they picked a nut. Her name, Jay Ursipar. She describes herself as a queer person of colour from a working class background. In a corporate document for the bank, she said, I feel privileged to help spread awareness of lived queer experiences and partner with charitable organisations, unquote. How about protecting depositors' money, Jay? As the saying goes, go woke, go broke. And pardon me for being alarmist, but it looks like the United States could be going down the same path as Silicon Valley Bank. Cop this. The US Financial Stability Oversight Council, that's the body created after the financial crisis in 2010, which was meant to avert just this sort of collapse, last met in February. The minutes of the meeting show that one of the council's key, key priorities is, quote, climate-related financial risks, unquote. According to Fox, the council describes climate change as, quote, an emerging threat to US financial stability, unquote. Climate change is also identified in its 2022 annual report as, quote, a key priority. Climate change, a key priority. Not protecting depositors' money and securing for depositors an appropriate return. So, who's going to pull these banks into line? What did Margaret Thatcher once say? The enemy is within. And so it is with America and Australia. Woke corporations, woke politicians, woke media, and dare I say, woke voters who swallow all this stuff. I keep alluding on this program, by the way, well, you know what I'm saying, just before we go, we're about to go, but I keep alluding on this program to the fact that something is seriously wrong with the nation's social order. And if people don't speak out about it and seek urgent change, then we are in a state of abject decay. It's no use pretending otherwise. This stuff is everywhere. Last week, in my view, a hero magistrate in Queanbeyan, Roger Clisdell, C-L-I-S-D-E-L-L, -L, I hope you're watching, Mr. Clisdell, heard a case against a female teacher, Emma Tiller. Stick to your guns, Emma. Now, what this matter was doing in the court is an issue in itself. But last March, the teacher, Emma Tiller, was accused of striking a seven-year-old boy on his shoulder in a primary school class. According to reports, the students were packing up and the teacher saw this boy picking up several patterned blocks and holding them in front of his pants, close to another child who was sitting in front of him. The teacher rightly shouted out to him to stop and he didn't, so she pushed his arm away from behind. Apparently, the female teacher did apologise to the boy for what she did. Why she's apologising, I've got no idea. The teacher was fired because of the incident. In smacking the boy, or pushing the boy, the teacher apparently left a bruise, two photos of which were tendered as evidence. The magistrate, Roger Clisdell, who himself now seems to be in strife, argued that the education department had lost, quote, a fantastic primary school teacher, dedicated, organised and well-meaning, unquote. But here was this teacher in court, having lost her job for disciplining a seven-year-old who had behavioural problems and was a constant nuisance, but because she laid her hands on the child, it was an assault. The magistrate, I think, spoke for millions of Australians when he said the courts see too many people, quote, from a generation who never experienced discipline at school, unquote. And the magistrate declared, shame on the education department for sacking Ms Tiller. 
The magistrate went on. This is a classic case of the insanity that's overtaken society in the 21st century. It started in the 1980s when we advised students that they had rights and we took away the control and power of firstly parents, then teachers, then the police and even the courts, unquote. But isn't that true? The child told the court that the teacher Emma Tiller, quote, smacked him and the smack caused a bruise on his arm. And the boy said the teacher thought he was doing, quote, something very silly, but he said he wasn't. Now, let me put it bluntly. The court heard that the teacher saw the seven-year-old holding his hands near his waist and thought he had taken out his penis near the face of another child or was, quote, simulating his penis using blocks. The teacher yelled out, stop. That's not appropriate. Well, he didn't stop. Quote, all I saw was, she said, he was still standing like this and she gestured, and I pushed his arms away from behind, unquote. She was sacked by the education department. The magistrate, Roger Clisdell, amongst other things, said correctly, quote, the courts cop criticism all the time because we don't stand up for what people see as proper values, unquote. The magistrate made the point that he had locked up a mentally unwell man that same day because there were no proper facilities. And now he was being asked to convict a teacher of assaulting, quote, an eight-year-old, who's eight by this time, an eight-year-old juvenile delinquent. The magistrate warned that modern society was going to collapse like the Roman Empire and accepted the teacher's evidence that she acted reasonably to defend another child. And the magistrate said, shame on the education department because they're setting a bar which is impossible to meet. And if they end up with no teachers, it'll be their own fault. And he ended, the matter is dismissed, not guilty. The AVO is dismissed. Well, then the fun started. The Director of Public Prosecutions challenged the decision in the New South Wales Supreme Court last year. And the judge, one Sarah McNaughton, said last Wednesday that the magistrate didn't make clear findings on key parts of the allegations. Listen to this nonsense. Justice McNaughton found the magistrate's decision was in error but surely the magistrate was articulating the views of any reasonable person when he talked about, quote, the insanity of allowing lunatics to run an asylum has become endemic in our society. And the courts cop criticism all of the time because we don't stand up for what people see as proper values. Well, Justice McNaughton said the magistrate's decision was in error. And she concluded, concluded it would appear that this matter resonated with the magistrate in an inappropriately emotional way and in a manner which appeared to cause him to stray from his judicial task, unquote. So Emma Tiller is still sacked and she'll have to return to the local court in Queanbeyan to be heard by another magistrate. And therein lies the dilemma. The magistrate's been found at fault by his superiors because the teacher was charged by police with common assault and assault occasioning actual bodily harm because she slapped a seven-year-old who ignored her direction to stop what she thought was inappropriate behaviour, and he got a bruise on his arm. And I presume, knowing the way the law operates today, went to the police, the teacher was charged with common assault, she loses her job. Amongst other things, the magistrate said, I get people from a generation who never experienced discipline at school and never had a report saying that they failed, who never came last in a race, and they come in here and say, what do you want, mate? Ask the magistrate, is that how we want our society? The insanity of allowing lunatics to run an asylum 
has become endemic in our society and the courts cop criticism all of the time because we don't stand up for what people see as proper values, unquote. If the magistrate stands up for proper values, but he's overruled by his superiors and the teacher remains sacked. I know whose side the public are on when the magistrate said that the charging of the teacher was, quote, a classic case of the insanity gripping the world that drives all teachers out of the job and threatens the collapse of society at large, unquote. The magistrate, in my opinion, deserves a medal. But the fact is, those who stand up for our values and seek to impose discipline in the classroom are cast aside. Well, may we say the inmates do run the asylum. Well, may we also say you might get decisions in the courts, but you don't get justice. That's it from me tonight. Thank you for being with me. You can listen to the program again on the podcast app from 6am tomorrow morning. And remember, you can email, email me, alanjones at adh.tv. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night.